Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles, month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our 11th episode, we're crossing Abbey Road and talking about its Link songs, the way the Beatles keep surprising us, and we bare fisticuffs over what's the last Beatles album and much, much more. Plus, we're watching one of the seminal documentaries about the Beatles, so stick around. We would shout. As with every month, here to gingerly leaf through the Beatles' discography while wearing white gloves is Rob Jones, a music critic and writer of the music blog The Delete Bin. Whither thou goest, Rob? Well, I, uh, I have to say that I've never worn white gloves in my life, Graham, so I resemble that remark. <laughs> Excellent. Also with us is Stephen Shapansky, a prolific podcaster whose works include the most popular Doctor Who podcast on planet Earth, Radio Free Scarrow. How are you today, Stephen? I am finding a cold... And I'm trying to tie that into some sort of Beatles-related thing, but I, I, I have nothing. <laughs> so there. Okay. I, yeah, well, I, 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 might, I might still have a better singing voice than Ringo with this cold, but uh, just so you know <laughs> what we're dealing with tonight. Harsh. All right. Octopus Garden in three, two. Okay. <laughs> All right. Before we talk about the Beatles, we have to do a recap. So this time, I've gotten out of that duty. Here now is Drew Meyer doing this episode's recap in an intriguing Morgan Freeman impression. My friend Graham Burke, he had an idea. Thought he'd listen to each album by the Beatles month by month. Then, he decided he'd do a podcast. He's just goddamn stupid like that, I guess. And with that out of the way, let's talk about this month's album, Abbey Road, which was released on September 26, 1969. We're now talking about an album that was released after Rob was born but before I was born, and well before Stephen was even thought of. In any event, here is everything you need to know about Abbey Road in three minutes, more or less.
Majesty's a pretty nice girl. Someday I'm gonna make a mine. Oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. So, Rob, we should probably be clear here that you and myself have differing points of view about doing Abbey Road as the 11th Beatles album, as it was technically recorded last, though it was released penultimately. You feel that we should have had this as the last Beatles album. Would you like to make your case now? Yeah, it, I mean, technically speaking, in terms of release dates, Let It Be was the, was the last one released, but I think spiritually and uh, in terms of recording chronology, this was definitely the the last Beatles album in, in so many respects. Um, it's, it's always been said, or I mean, that the band members have, have said, rather, they didn't realize that it was going to be the last album, but it sure sounds like they sure sounds like they thought it was going to be. So, you know, in, in that respect alone, you know, this is like the Ar Arthurian journey to uh, Avalon type of type of sound to it. This, this whole album sounds that way to me. So that's kind of the that's kind of my my argument, I suppose. Hmm. I, I, I can take your point. I guess for me, I feel that, you know, when I did this relist and I wanted to kind of experience Abbey Road, how fans and indeed the world experienced in 1969 as sort of a second last Beatles album. And and with Let It Be a sort of an, an epilogue, even though it was recorded earlier. Where do you sit on this debate, Stephen? To, to speak about in a Doctor Who world, Graham, uh, you know, <laughs> Abbey Road is basically... The Beatles ghost light to let it be survival True. you know survival being the last broadcast Doctor Who story God ghost light being the last one made um, so if you talk to people who made it they probably think oh I remember when we closed up shop with ghost light uh, if you locked if you talk to people who watch Doctor Who they talk about oh that last episode being survival so I think depending on if you know people who make it Especially after the hellish experiences of Let It Be. No one wants Let It Be. Honestly, let's face it. Let It Be, because of Phil Spector puking all over it, as Phil McCartney so famously said, I don't think even feels like a Beatles album. Um, I, I think Let It Be Naked probably feels a little closer to what they wanted it to be. And that came on years after the fact. So I, I'd, I'd kind of like to see, think of Let It Be as almost like a coda, Led Zeppelin's coda, so to speak, as yeah. we do another metaphor. Um, and that Abbey Road is, is, is truly the true spiritual finale of the Beatles. Doctor Who, once again, proving to be a useful universal metaphor for... As always. As always. <laughs> A recurring theme in this uh, in this blog, <laughs> yes, this of podcast. course, because, because I only ever ask people who know about Doctor Who to be on the show. So, because <laughs> <laughs> well, Graham, you only know people who know about Doctor <laughs> Who. That's the problem. That is also true, sadly. Um, <laughs> with me too. With me too. Now, as we come to uh, what it was in terms of recording the Beatles' last album, what is it about Abbey Road that sort of continues to surprise you? It surprises me just because it, it, it sounds so cohesive when really it isn't. I mean, you know, the, the band was probably about as together, not necessarily bickering, but perhaps resigned to their fate as they were during Let It Be and, and the White Album. But it, the product is so much more polished and produced, and it sounds like a band that's actually getting along and, you know, playing like they did in the olden days, except, of course, with, with new and more complex arrangements. Whereas I think, you know, the White Album and Let It Be, it sounds like four different musicians playing together and having their own songs and their own thoughts and opinions sort of being put forth in an album. 
Abbey Road sounds like a complete thing. And then you see how, you know, John Lennon was, wasn't really interested in it that much. And, and it was basically, you know, a lot of it was due to Paul McCartney's doing. And so that kind of surprises me, you know, because uh, you, you think that a group nearing the end of its natural run would sort of peter off and, 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 and fade away, so to speak. But I, I think they were all probably very concerned about the legacy of the Beatles and wanted to sort of finish off with a good one one last time. Well, very similarly to that, I, I think, I mean, I, I've lived with this album my whole life. It, it, it's, it might be my favorite album by anyone. It looms large in, in, my, in my world, I suppose. But I suppose in terms of the whole surprise element, I guess in uh, very similar uh, to, to Stephen, uh, it's the idea that the Beatles still put something out that is, is a progression from the last thing that they did. Uh, and it seems like they just couldn't help themselves in terms of making the next album a, a bigger deal than the last. Uh, and and I, I suppose you know that's the thing that really strikes strikes me. Even though they were in the middle of, you know, they were in the middle of very fractious arguments and and all that kind of stuff, and they were breaking up as a band. Uh, the, their output was you know still really progressive, uh, artistically speaking. Uh, so I think that that's probably the biggest uh, the biggest shock I suppose with this record in terms of where the way it sounds and and you know the way the way it's put together it's a progression it's still a progression even though the band is beginning to fragment for me the biggest surprise is and uh i'm going to do our traditional evocation of uh of shannon dohar because she's going to high five me for this <laughs> uh, i feel I feel this album is totally owned by George. I think Something and Here Comes the Sun are the best tracks on the album far and away. And mm. and I feel like and I feel like he's a very dominant presence. He feels much more uh much more sort of integral in, in, in an odd way given the fact that, you know, so much the second half of the album is virtually sort of stage managed by Paul, but for me when I think of Abbey Road, I think of this as a George Harrison album. Um and I feel huh. like it's the I think it's I think it's the Beatles album where George Harrison was the dominant member in in, in a strange way. Yeah, I think I I think even McCartney said that agreed with you and said that something and here comes the sun are are the best songs on the record. Um and a, a very strenuous argument can be made. Again, I, in terms of Here Comes the Sun in particular, I mean, that's a very progressive song uh, in every way, like in terms of its instrumentation and all that kind of kind of stuff. But, of course, I'm jumping ahead. You're going to ask me about my favorite track, so I'll save it all till then. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> and, and, and yet, though, and yet George still gets his basically, you know, contractually obligated two songs. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. He harsh. But he gets but he gets two of his tackier songs, and, and whereas I don't think John's four songs on the album are actually among his best. I, I, I come together is quite good, but but the and I like Sun King as as a contribution to the Link side, but I actually don't think he's his stuff on on it are, is actually particularly. I mean, he might he might have been busy dealing with his heroin addiction at the time, but it's <laughs> but it's but it's yeah, I got a lot but, on my plate right now. Says John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give me some more smack. Um, <laughs> it's only two songs, and yet they're really spectacular. And this pivots very nicely, as Rob uh, already presaged, into my next question, which is that the album is a bit of a game of two halves between the regular songs on the A side and early B side and the linked symphony of songs. So why don't we talk about the non-linked songs first? Rob, what, what would you be your pick? Uh, I'm going to go with Come Together. Come Together is a just a 
giant song. It's it's huge. Uh, and even for Ringo's drum pattern alone, you know. Again, Ringo had a real sort of instinct for what what makes a song better in terms of in terms of drum fills and things like that. And we were talking when we were talking about uh, Revolver. We were talking about his drum pattern with Tomorrow Never Knows, and he pulls out another one with Come Together. That just a, an amazing drum pattern with the toms and the and the hi hats and just incredible on that level alone. But uh, lyrically speaking too, I mean John Lennon is kind of channeling uh, Chuck Berry a little bit. Uh, he actually got into a bit of trouble with Chuck Berry because uh, of some lines that he borrowed uh, from a, from a Chuck Berry song called uh, uh, "You Can't Catch Me." I think it was. New Jersey Turnpike in the wee wee hours. I was rolling slow because of drizzling showers. Yeah, come a flat top. He was moving up with me. Then come waving goodbye and a little old suit up Jenny. I put. My... But but lyrically speaking, that's just. It's just huge, uh, and just everything about this song is just on an epic scale, and it's a great way to kick off a record. Now, Stevie, you're actually a drummer, so with, <laughs> uh, I was I was curious. Unlike Ringo, <laughs> no, that's oh, a joke. Ow, ow. Okay, <laughs> so I was I'm curious kidding. if you wanted if you wanted to um, <laughs> comment on follow from Rob's comment on on the drumming on come together. Well, you know what? It's uh, I I I came I prepared for this podcast expecting to kind of hate Ringo or sort of speak ill of him and I think I was unfair in my own mind Ringo is not the best technical drummer you know he's not even the most skilled drummer he's not he's not really even the the backbone of a band like a John Bonham for Led Zeppelin to be for instance you know but what I like about Ringo is that especially I, th I think he probably works best with the Beatles in their later stage than with their earlier stage. He provided the good backbeat during the, uh, during the early albums, but he approaches drums with later Beatles almost more as just orchestral percussion. He doesn't know. He doesn't necessarily like if a lesser drummer would probably just sort of do, do, boo, do, boo, do, during the opening intro for come together, but he turns it into an actual written percussion part. And it's it's kind of clever, and you you get the impression that he was he wasn't thinking about, you know, how do I play the drums for this song? He's thinking how do I contribute to this song to make it better without necessarily overtaking everyone on there. I mean, during some of the verses, you know, he changes it up. You listen to what Ringo's playing and come together, and sometimes he's he's doing like quarter notes on the floor tom, and like you know on two and four on the snare as per usual. I think the last verse he's basically just hitting half notes on the floor tom essentially so he simplifies it Got to be good looking cause he's so hard to see. as opposed to like making it more complex as the song goes along he's a clever drummer he's a much more clever drummer than i than i give him credit for and i think a lot of people give, give him credit for and he's also a left-handed drummer playing on a right-handed kit which is why if you listen to that the opening drum roll in uh in come together it's do 
it's actually going from low tom to high tom, which is the opposite way as it's laid out on on, on the right hand hmm. drum kit. So he's actually going the opposite way because he's left handed. I did not know that. Stephen, what is what, what what's your standout? You know what? Uh, I'm going to go against. I love. I mean, I love something. It's a great song. Um, but everyone loves something. I'm going to go with, and this this might be my my past experience playing in bands bias coming through but i love i want you she's so heavy <laughs> because uh, oftentimes when i was playing just some with some friends in a basement or something we would play that song and each verse we would sort of change it up each verse we you know and do like we'll do a, a verse one verse is a bossa nova and another <laughs> one we do is a disco and it's it was so much fun to play you could just really yeah. play around with it and of course the epic exit which John Lennon said to the engineer, you know, cut it right there. Boom. And it just ends, which I just think is so <laughs> cheeky. Uh, and it, it, it's, it, it's a fun song. I, I, I love listening to that song. I, I, th I think it took me about 50 or 60 listens to be able to pinpoint when the sudden stop was going to occur, but it was worth it. I've already sort of played my hand uh, because I've talked about how George Harrison owns this album. So to add a little bit of detail, I mean, last episode I talked about four songs I've listened to this year with the in this year with the Beatles that have totally surprised me. And I mentioned three of them. I mentioned No Reply, Help, and Helter Skelter. The fourth one was Something. And, and to a certain extent, I, I think I've always heard the song. I've, you know, in the, growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was like a mainstay of AM radio. You could not escape from some, something for the better part of better part of the first 15 years of my existence. But for me, going back to it, I was just so s taken by what an incredible song it is. It's kind of like no reply in that the coloring and the mood of it is just so vivid. And for me, it's no one part of it. It's it's the guitar. Plus the bass line. She moves. Plus the drumming. Attracts me like Plus the use of the strings. Plus the actual vocal. I actually, I actually think George's vocal is wonderful in it. Something in the way she woos me. It's, for me, it's the sum of its parts, and the parts are perfect. Something in the way she knows And all I have to do is think of her So, yeah, I, I, I guess I am everyone in that, yeah, I, I like something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And McCartney's bass part is, uh, is really, really busy. It yet, is. Yet, at, yet at the same time, it's it's not. I don't find that it's intrusive. I think George Harrison at the time kind of disagreed with me there. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think Harrison thought that uh, McCartney's bass playing was a bit too elaborate, but uh, I really think it it's a it's a great counter melody to to what uh, George is laying down. And also, in terms of the guitar part, uh, to me. Something is where George Harrison kind of perfects that really clean kind of sound that he would he would sort of become known for in his solo career. Yeah, uh, and it's just it's just a pristine uh, a, a pristine line uh, in that song, and the solo is absolutely perfect. It's just yeah. perfect. 
Yeah, it, this, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about all those things. And and, and it is, for me, it's, it's a very Baroque kind of song. And for me, I think the... Uh, the baseline that 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 Paul is adding is actually just instinctively perfect for for what that is. I, I, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it just has that works. Why don't we move to the link songs? These songs are so short that I'm not going to say what's your what's favorite songs, but why don't I ask a more basic question? What are your favorite moments within that sort of whole linked section? My favorite moments, my heavens. I mean, Abbey Road's my favorite Beatles album of all time. I think because of every single moment of that medley. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I love, I think She Came In Through the Bathroom Window is one of my favorite Beatles songs ever. Uh, and that might also be because um, I think that Joe Cocker's version of it, released not long after this, was pretty amazing mm. unto itself. Came in through the bathroom window And just showed you what an awesome rollicking song it was. Yeah. Um, Sun King is lovely. I th um, I love the you know the opening piano chords of "You Never Give Me Your Money" is also lovely. But it's the it's the four part harmonies, and this is this is where the surprise come in. You know when when the band wasn't necessarily playing as a as a foursome during the recording of this, but then you listen to those harmonies on "Because," and it's some of the most complex mm. and beautiful harmonies. Love is Love is new. Love is all. Love is you. Because the sky is blue, it makes me cry. And if you listen to the the Beatles' Love album the official mashup uh, to accompany the Circle Soleil show. And they just isolate those, the vocal tracks and not the harpsichord underneath. Love is old, love is new. Love is old, love is you. Because the sky is blue, it makes me And it really isolates how amazingly well those voices meshed together in, in three-part harmony. And so those, those are a small collection of some of my favorite moments. I, I love Golden Slumbers. That's the sort of core of the of of the of the symph of the symphonic piece, if you will. You know, I, I, I love the way it mashes up the, the the lullaby with an actual totally different song and sort of combines the two nicely. Sun King is actually really quite good. Um, I actually prefer it to come together uh, in, in many ways. I just like the tone of it. It just has the right kind of the right kind of mood, and 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 it just feels absolutely the right piece to do with at that moment. And I love the end. 
I think the end is is just a great closer for the whole thing. The way it builds, you know, you even get a you even get a drum solo for the first time from from, from Ringo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Feel free to rebut, Stephen, and and then to and then we get closes off nicely. I, I, I yeah, those are mine. Rob, I don't think that we can talk about Abbey Road and not talk about the three-way guitar duel uh, that happens in the end. In some ways, uh, it, it sort of characterizes how each member approached the playing of guitar in general. And I just love that, all the personality that comes through uh, in, in, in the parts that those guys laid down, you know, and, and linked together. So that, that's definitely a definite high point. That, I used to listen to uh, Abbey Road every single day when I came home from school at one point. Uh, and it was during the, the guitar solo that I'd, I'd be jumping on the furniture. Uh, and, you know, that to me is always the yardstick for, uh, uh, for good rock music. You know, does it make you jump on the furniture? If it does, it's good. You know, it's that's kind of the litmus test, uh, and that's that's a huge. So that's a kind of a huge moment for me. I would like to echo the sentiments that were talked about uh, with because, uh, just sublime. I think Yoko was playing Moonlight Sonata on on the piano, and and John said, "Oh, that's nice," and then he inverted all the chords and played it backwards or something like that, and that's how you get the. That's how you got that sort of uh, harpsichord part, but it really is the voices that really brings it through. And I, in terms of Beatles records, I really think that that's a, that's a common thread that runs through all of them. Just their voices, you know. They were good singers, you know, together uh, individually, but also together as a as a band. You know, they were good singers together. And uh, in some ways, having because on there is. Uh, it's important. It's important that that song be on there for that reason, you know, to kind of to, to carry that thread through. Um, and I also love Polythene Pan because, uh, you know, mm-hmm. John Lennon goes full on Scouse on, on that one, you know. She's the kind of a girl that makes a news of the world. That uh, that Liverpool uh, thing comes comes right through, and I I, I think that was impor- an important addition as well, you know, just the the fact that, you know, we're guys from Liverpool. We just came from Liverpool, you know. We're we've got humble origins, you know, and and that was that was an in, uh, an important addition to the record too. I don't know. I could go on and on. Sorry, I should probably cut myself off there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we accept your premise, Rob, that this is the Beatles' last real offering to the world with Abbey Road, uh, what are we supposed to make uh, of the fact that that last act of it is indeed the Link song? It's pushing to very different territory, and but at the same time, I get the sense that it's Paul's idea, and the guys are kind of going along with it more than more than you know, sort of being full participants like they were, say, with the Sgt. Pepper project or something like that. Yeah, I, I think practically speaking, I think the guys had uh, a bunch of, um, or I guess John and Paul mainly, had, had a bunch of song fragments just kicking around, you know, and uh, toward the end of their career, that's, you know, that was more, more of a thing than before, maybe. I guess they just decided to string them all together, uh, you know. At that time, you know, symphonic rock and the beginnings of prog were beginning to happen, uh, and so there was a certain 
precedent that was set for having these longer linked pieces. And in this case, it doesn't really add up to a big concept or anything, but it does sort of hold a, a kind of cohesion, I guess. Um, and I think that that's kind of, I mean, I, I think they were linking into a lot of what was happening around them artistically at the time, like, like they had always done, you know, they, they were always music fans. So I, th I think a lot of, the, a lot of that is, is based on what was happening around them. I think it's also just a, a sign of knowing, I mean, this, you know, some of the song fragments that John came up with, it, you know, they aren't necessarily that different from what he was doing on the White Album, except he would do two verses and a chorus and then that would be it. And that would be the song on the White Album. Here, they actually meld it into another, you know, part of a larger unit. And I think, you know, George Martin deserves some credit as well. George Martin be my, being my favorite Beatle, by the way, if you want to throw some controversy into this. Uh, and it, sort of melding all of that together. Because, you know, he Paul McCartney, after the horrors of, of Let It Be, um, phoned up George Martin and says, let's produce another album. And he said, George Martin said, only if we do it like we used to do it. Mm when he sort of had control over it. And you can tell that that cohesion is, is over that. And so he took those little fragments that John made, those possibly disinterested fragments from Lennon, and turned them into songs. It's funny because Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene and Pam really fit together well as a two-part song. Um, and sometimes I'm amazed that they actually are different songs altogether, especially when you think of like Happiness is a Warm Gun. It's kind of a similar thing, mm. but they're two entirely different song fragments. I think it's what you said earlier, Stephen. They're, they're, going, they're going down swinging. Like, they're, they're, they're not going down with, well, I guess let it be, basically. They're going down with an idea to try and do something very different, to actually try and that, create, that creates uh, a unity out of all sorts of disparate fragments. And I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a marvelous kind of it. But I also think it, you can see where the band is splintering because well George Martin is very heavily involved with this with Paul I think George is just doing his stuff and 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 getting the hell out of there I don't I don't feel like it's something the band is committed to doing as a unity but they it feels like they are it has that it has that illusion of it which I think is something you, which I thought was a really well observed point you had earlier Stephen it's Beatles breakup sex let's face it you know <laughs> Yeah. This is them going, you know, perhaps just sort of like, let's let's just do it one more time before we leave each other. And then by the end of it, you know, like the guitar solos and the drum solos in Carry That Weight and Golden Slumbers in the end. And they're all, by that point, they're saying, you know what, this was kind of fun. We had fun doing this. Let's, it, this is a good time to end it. That's what, that's what it reminds me mm -hmm. of, of those guitar solos. I, I can see that they didn't record it that way, but in my mind's eye... I see them trading guitar solos back and forth and sort of the other two guys smiling and laughing and having fun as the third guy is playing his solo and then over to the, the next guy. I, I, you know, it sounds like a much more cohesive network uh, album than it probably was. I guess my final question it starts with a, more of a statement on my part. I called Abbey Road Beatles 70 in my notes because it feel, genuinely feels like the Beatles doing a 1970s album. And I feel you can see in that album a lot of 
trends that would come up in 70s music kind of writ large. You, you have sort of tight, fully integrated orchestration. You have you have electronic music integrated in it. You have a sort of a lot of concept I, uh, album ideas and linked songs. You have very lush production. Uh, you, you have an eight-track recorder for the first time in Beatles history, which was considered yeah. a luxury at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that is true too. Rob, do you do you think there's a legitimate case to make for Abbey Road to, as a forerunner of of seventies music? Yeah, I think so, and I think it's because of what, uh, well, at least very very heavily because of what uh, Stephen just said, and that is that the the recording, the technology had uh, improved in leaps and bounds, you know, by this time. So Abbey Road has always been the best sounding Beatles album to me, and I think a lot of people would agree with me on that. Um, in terms of its its, it's you know the the pristine quality of the, of the recording itself, um, and I think that kind of it doesn't feel like a '60s album in that regard. It's also kind of heavier, you know. It, it's it's very heavy in places, you know, and it has that kind of the attack of of you know hard rock as as it was emerging at this time. So yeah, I think I think a big case can be made made for this. Although having said that, you know, it's it's very interesting that. In their solo careers, they n none of them made a record like this. Um, you know, they they went in completely opposite directions. So it's it's hard to say what what the Beatles would have sounded like if they would have continued. Um, it's almost impossible to to guess, really. Um, but in in terms of it linking in with another sort of coming era, I think you could definitely make the make the the, the case for that for sure. I think George, I think you can sort of make a case that you could sort of see where George would evolve to from this, uh, from his, from this to his first solo album. But yeah, I, I, I think one of the points you made earlier, Rob, is that George has a much cleaner guitar sound. And I think that's also emblematic of a lot of, a lot of the guitar sound of, of a lot of early seventies albums, uh, you know? Mm -hmm. it, so, so I feel that, I feel that's also kind of a part of it too. Mm-hmm. Stephen, are, are you buying into this idea that there might be a proto-1970s album here? Definitely. You know what? I haven't. I never thought of it at the time, and I think only recently did I sort of see it as that kind of, you know, amalgamated thing. Especially when you listen to the, uh, like, the Moog synthesizer on, like, um, Maxwell Silverhammer, for instance. I mean, that's a very futuristic sound for the Beatles to be using. Um, and for not necessarily... It's not like a prominent thing either. Like, you know, whenever prog rock bands would find these new toys, they would exploit it to the hilt. They use it basically for this a solo in between verses, essentially, and, and not really ever again. So I think the, I think the Beatles were always good at restraint which is probably what doesn't make it a prototype of 1970s album because <laughs> restraint was not the name of the game. Good point. True. You know, they the Beatles always knew, or perhaps George Martin knew, just where to go and how far to go with technology or strings or, or bombast or even, like, you know, too little. Like, they never went – there was nothing too sparse for the sake of being sparse either. It was just right. So I, I think in concept, like like many things, the Beatles inspired, it went off to be different things, possibly because the people who were copying the Beatles or were inspired by the Beatles were doing it wrong. Um, and they completely messed up what parts actually made the Beatles and sort of became entirely different monsters. 
Well, I think it's a good place to end off our conversation on Abbey Road. If you have anything you'd like to say, you can send us an email at beatles at gemgeekarrearbug.com or visit our website at ayearwiththebeatles.podbean.com. And now, as we do every episode, we're going to have what we call extra credit homework, where we listen to or watch some Beatles material that complements the album we're listening to. And this month, we've been watching this. Liverpool, 200 miles to the northwest of London. Nothing much ever came from Liverpool but soccer teams and British comedians. The city droned on wearily in post-war Britain, a nation nostalgic for its triumphant past, threadbare and tired in its present. For a boy growing up in Liverpool, the future was no brighter than that which his father had faced, or his father's father. In 1956, in fact, there was little to suggest that out of this provincial seaport would come four young men and a musical revolution that would captivate and change the world. Ringo, George, John. That's a clip from the 1982 documentary, The Complete Beatles, which was directed by Patrick Montgomery. This documentary has been very sadly out of print for the over 20 years, though several video streaming sites have copies of it. Rob, this documentary was something that you and I both repeatedly watched as teenagers and into our 20s. What's the appeal of it for you? Well, you know, this is fairly well-trammeled territory, I, I think, in terms of our podcast here, Graham, and talking about movies uh, that sort of cover the Beatles, but at least it is for me. Yeah. Um, and that is that it just it captures the story of the Beatles as, as if it's a, a myth, as if it's a, a story, uh, you know, almost like a fiction, you know, with, with these sort of legendary characters. And, and in watching it again, I, I noticed that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the writing, a lot of, uh, of Malcolm McDowell's narration, like the, 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 the sort of rhetoric is really piled pretty high, you know what I mean? Like it's, mm. it, it's kind of over the top in places. And, uh, but, but it kind of suits the material in that it, it does kind of feel, uh, I mean, it's a documentary, but it, it feels like, you know, like a, like a, a quest myth, you know, just because that seems to be the way that this, the story is shaped. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that really came through here. I mean, in, in particularly because they didn't actually in, uh, involve any of the Beatles. Now, maybe if they had, it wouldn't have come off that way. Um, but uh, but it, it sounds like, it sounds like uh, again, that Arthurian legend type, mm. type stuff, you know. So it's kind of appropriate we're talking about it as we, as we talk about Abbey Road. Yeah. For me, I, what I love about it is that the narrative is actually quite tight and focused. It, 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 it's a good, it's a really great survey of the whole Beatles career. And it, it's remarkable distillation of it in many ways. It, it doesn't go off into too many tangents. It, it keeps the narrative very tight and focused. For me, you know, one of the, the great appeals of it is Malcolm McDowell's narration. I, for one, would love to have highlights of my life narrated by Malcolm McDowell. Um, <laughs> and, and he has a way of delivering it, that the sort of very kind of it's a it's a kind of dour kind of very kind of pithiness that i just i just love it i love the pause he takes when he's talking about rishikesh and then he says and ringo didn't like the food towards the end of their stay however the group began to doubt that the maharishi's motives were entirely spiritual when rumors began to fly that one of the women in their entourage has become the object of his earthly desires besides Ringo didn't like the food. 
<laughs> it just, yeah. it just, yeah, it just has that great quality. <laughs> now, Stephen, one detail that people about you that people may not know is that aside from your love of Doctor Who, Lego, baseball, hockey, and American politics, you're also a huge fan of documentaries. So, how did you like the Complete Beatles? You know, I, it's funny. Uh, as I was watching parts of it, and uh, I'm, I'm going to refer to it a film I've only seen once. So, don't jump in with quotes because okay. I will not win that battle. But if you watch this site unseen, this comes out like four years after um, yeah. Eric Idle's the the Ruddles, and it it seems like like if you if you didn't know any better, you watch some of these scenes and the way it's put together, it's so like a mockumentary <laughs> in some ways because I could totally see this being you know that style of 1980s British documentary being made about some fictitious band you know this 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 same year I mean it came out in 1982 which is when Spinal Tap entered production which finally came out in 84 so some it's weird how Spinal Tap has kind of <laughs> wrecked documentaries music documentaries for me and that I'm always sort of expecting the other shoe to fall whenever I'm watching these things well, I guess what are, what are your favorite sequences Rob I think every time George Martin is on the screen is my favorite part of the of the uh, of, of the documentary. I think, I think mainly because you know watching it as a teenager, um, I was interested in that mythic quality that I talked about earlier. But I was also interested in uh, the idea of how records are made. Mm. Uh, and so when uh, when George Martin is talking about you know how he put various tracks together and what some <clears throat> what some of the challenges were and all that kind of stuff. That's riveting stuff for me. John then came back a few days later and said, look, I like what we've just done, but I like a bit, I like the other one as well. Can't we put the two together? And maybe take the first half of one and second half of another. So well, there's only thing one, one thing wrong with that, and that is, first of all, they're a semitone apart. They're not in the same key. And also, they're different tempos. He said, well, I'm sure you can fix it. So by varying the speed of one, I was able to edit the two together. And that's how, how it was issued. And, and he talks about it in such a casual and sort of accessible kind of way. Uh, I think when I was first watching this, uh, again, you know, as a teenager, it, it really made me interested in the process of, of making records. And I've kind of been hooked ever since. And so I, I think, I think every, basically every time George Martin is on the screen is my favorite part. Yeah, his um, well, there's two things. One going on what Rob said, uh, his explanation of how the one of the greatest songs of all time, um, certainly the most influential, and probably the, my vote for the best Beatles song of all time, "Tomorrow Never Knows," how that was created, and it's you know you get the impression that it's I mean he tells you that's a live performance you're hearing. And it's because of all these tape loops, and some of them are so long that they're like looped around chairs and other rooms and everything. And they're basically fading up the slider whenever they sort of like, okay, there's the seagulls or what the, the the backwards Paul laughing track on this one. And you know that's that's such an engineered performance uh, that made it on the album. So to hear him, you know, firsthand talking about that, it's it's fascinating stuff. What I also love are the archive footage of some of their early concerts. Because it is so fascinating to see, you know, the Beatles basically broke the mold when it came to crowds at concerts. I mean, obviously the Shea Stadium being the famous one. But also beforehand, you look at the, you, what I love about that, they, they show the clip of the very first American concert in Washington. And it's them on this circular stage in the middle of the audience. They're all around. And they don't have like 
a rotating stage. There's not like fans blocked off behind them or anything like that. What they have is after a song, they say, hey, there's fans behind us. No roadies come on. Ringo picks up his own drum set, flips it around. The Beatles flip their little Vox amps around so that the other side of the, the there's, you know, there's just there's no pageantry to the uh, the live performances at all. I felt they had a good supporting cast of people to sort of um, to sort of speak up for. Uh, Marianne Faithful, in particular, is a surprisingly mm-hmm. intuitive uh, and understood the kind of dynamics of the band and was able to really, really add in a lot. I thought. Uh, I also and, and and they have they use the music of the Beatles really well in this. Um, I love their use of I'm so tired and they have a picture of the Beatles together and then they fade out each member and it's and they're doing this when the as the Beatles is breaking up while they're playing I'm so tired and, and that mm-hmm. chorus on it and it, it is such a brilliant visual sequence uh, I, I really really love touches like that there, there's a similar one sorry Graham I just want to jump in that with similar um, along those lines where they're when Malcolm McDowell sort of describing how they were growing completely weary of touring and there's this sort of this I don't think it's a Beatles song, but it's just sort of this low dirge. Yeah. yeah. And just like, you know, over top of like, you know, rampaging fans and everything. And Their tour of the Far East in June of 1966 was a firm indication that Beatlemania was going sour. There were riots in the Philippines when the group unintentionally snubbed the country's first lady. The backlash spread to the U.S., when John's remarks about the decline of religion were misquoted by an American teen magazine. This is Doug Layton and Tommy Charles. We're reminding you that our fantastic Beatle boycott is still in effect. Don't you forget what the Beatles have said. And don't forget to take your Beatle records and your Beatle paraphernalia to any one of our 14 pickup points in Birmingham, Alabama, and turn them in this week if possible. <laughs> with no real audio going on it, it's almost like newsreel footage of like wartime. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they really conveyed what kind of an awful life they must've had during those touring years. Go as George Martin was saying, going from basically hotel room to stage to plane to and on and on and on again for basically four straight years. Um, when they were hitting it big. So that was a pretty cool sequence. Yeah. Too. There was a, there's a, there's a part in there, which, which really struck me as just, absolute misery and that's when they were i guess when when they were in uh, australia and they came out of the the uh, boac plane with umbrellas because there was like a typhoon happening and yeah. and then they had to get onto that little moving truck so that they could be sort of per- literally paraded in front of everybody who would come to, to to meet them at the airport and just the fact that they were sort of treated like props uh, and the rain is lashing them and at one point one of them loses an umbrella and it's yeah. It's just miserable, just absolutely miserable. I mean, if uh, where do you think this sits with other with, with with within the pantheon of other Beatles documentaries? Well, for me, again, you know, I, as I mentioned with the, when we were talking about Abbey Road, this sort of looms very large uh, in my personal history with the with the Beatles. It was the first time uh, that I'd been exposed to the entire story, uh, and so. In, in some ways, uh, you know, it always has a place in my heart, the anthology series, you know, and that was that was huge, too. In some ways, that sort of eclipsed the complete Beatles. But 
this one, as you say, Graham, is very tightly. It's a very tightly told story, and it's got really nice touches in it. It makes really great uh, use of the music, um, and the interview sections. S some of the some of the interviewees are kind of kind of odd, um, you know, like uh, Jerry Marsden. I, I guess it's not that odd because he was kind of on the scene in uh, in Hamburg and everything like that. But it has little quirks like that. But generally speaking, I think it's, it's I, I still think it's pretty solid. Come on, this is the first time I'd ever seen it, uh, and I remember watching the uh, Beatles anthology when it aired on ABC back in 1995 and how sprawling it was too sprawling in my opinion when it came out on, on home video um, later on because I think they included basically whenever they cut to a, a, a live performance of one song or half a song in the televised version they basically showed the entire concert and that's what made the thing longer and a little more unfocused but here as you say Graham it just seems very tight and now you get why, and, and also, I, you know, there's a slight editorializing about the White Album and Let It Be and, and Magical Mystery Tour, whereas the Beatles anthology did not deal with that because Paul McCartney was dealing with it. And so I was, I was surprised, I shouldn't say surprised, because I think Paul McCartney, kind of like George Lucas in the Star Wars Holiday Special, wants to take everything that's negative about the Beatles out there, buy it up, and hide it away forever. And so that's what he did with the complete Beatles. It only was released on VHS. Will probably never be released ever again. That's why Let It Be, the the documentary movie from 1970, will probably never ever see a DVD release, um, which is tragic because I've seen a very low grade quality on it, and it's a fascinating piece about seeing a, a band disintegrate basically on film. Um, and so that's why I like about the complete Beatles. There's that sort of separation. The fact that none of the Beatles are actually participating in it makes it a much more even-handed approach, I think, in looking at the career and sort of looks at the sidesteps and the mistakes and you know and the, and the battles that perhaps you wouldn't see in an official documentary. You've articulated two of the things I, I love about it. I think the fact that the Beatles aren't in it is its major selling point. I I made the point when we were talking about eight days a week with Petra Mayer that I feel like the further away you get from having the Beatles involved in a documentary, the better the documentary is. <laughs> and I uh -huh. think and I think you know you get anthology even to a lesser extent uh, eight days a week. You, you have basically Paul kind of relitigating his life story every time he's interviewed. And and I uh -huh. and I don't feel that that's actually helping helping what's going on and i so i so i really did did like this because you didn't have that extra layer you could just sort of see the story for what it is and sort of and, uh -huh. and sort of see the beatles as they as they were at the time it was happening as mm -hmm. opposed to mm -hmm. as opposed to you know paul trying to relitigate yet again you know what he was doing <laughs> during the white album years I mean, yeah like... <laughs> but you still have george martin and that's the important thing if they didn't have george martin it would be lesser but george martin is so refreshingly honest and self-deprecating enough for his own you know he sort of casually mentions you know his enormous contribution but he yeah. sort of downplays it you know I mean, his his presence pretty much obviates the need for the Beatles to talk about the songs because I think one of the things it has that I like about it is it has it has the right level of distance. It's it's about it's made about you know eleven twelve years after the band broke up, but so but so it's it's not it's not too far out that you know you've got you've got you've got twenty years to kind of re, to, to to really relitigate. But it, but it's it's enough distance that you can sort of see what was happening and talk about it, but not not so much that it becomes very diffuse. I I, I think it's it's made at exactly the right moment to uh, moment in time to to, to make a, a documentary like that. I think it's um it's fa it's fascinating timing actually because I mean it's 
Sure, came out in 82, 12 years after the Beatles broke up, but it's only two years since John Lennon died. That's right. Um, maybe a little less than. And it's also the first, like, full-on sort of retrospective of the complete career of the Beatles. And I, I can only imagine, I mean, there was the, the famous time when they very nearly uh, reunited on Saturday Night Live that one time in the, in the late 70s, yeah. but then didn't. And I imagine that sort of, like, will they ever reunite feeling was happening up until John Lennon died. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, you know, the Beatles, sure the Beatles famously, you know, um, ended the sixties when they broke up. I think that this, you know, that a whole new, a whole different era from that time ended, um, you know, because around that time, John Lennon died in 1983 months before that John Bonham died and Led Zeppelin broke up. Keith Moon died a year before that, that generation of musicians, and those iconic bands, the Who, uh, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, were all like, that's it. It's over. And punk had happened. And now New Wave was coming in. And so I think there was a bit more of a of a nostalgia for that kind of music and that era. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why the timing of that was poignant and probably why it was made at that time as, as well. Speaking of time, I think that's all the time we have. We'll be back very soon with some supplementary episodes, followed by our final episode on 1970s album Let It Be. That's next time on A Year with the Beatles. In the meantime, thank you, Rob Jones and Stephen Schapansky. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Rob. I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next time. And that is it. Hooray. I think, I think you should put this one out last just to mess <laughs> with everyone and have this one be the last one out. <laughs> and, except talk about that Let It Be is coming and then it's already been out. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell you how you do your podcast. That's how it's going to work. Okay. I appreciate I, I appreciate that. <laughs>